0: Welcome to the Sunwater Institute's Reforming Congress interview series. Today's interview is with Yuval Levine. Levine is the director of social, cultural, and constitutional studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies the foundations of self-government and the future of law, regulation, and constitutionalism. In addition, he is the founding and current editor of National Affairs, senior editor of The New Atlantis, and a contributing editor to National Review. And now to our host,
1: Matthew Shervinek.
0: Yvonne, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Why don't we start off with your background, where you started off, arc of your career, what you're doing now?
1: Well, I'm I'm an immigrant to the United States. I was born in Israel. Uh, My family came to the U.S. when I was a child, and I grew up in New Jersey. And uh, I guess I would describe myself these days as a recovering political scientist. Um, I... uh, I have a PhD from the University of Chicago in political theory, but have spent the last 20 years um, working in public policy in one way or another, in government first uh, as a congressional staffer and uh, a White House staffer in the Bush administration, and now for more than a decade uh, as a think tank scholar. And I'm now director of social, cultural, and constitutional studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm the editor of a quarterly policy journal called National Affairs.
0: And so why did you leave the, uh, the government and go into think tankery? Was there some motivation for that? And, or, or, is, or, or do you have an eye to return at some point?
1: Well, you know, my interest has always been, I would say, at the intersection of theory and practice in public policy. Um, that space where the ideas that you might study as an academic looking at political theory intersect with how government actually works and how our politics functions um, I learned an enormous amount on that front in government and, uh, you know, found it very valuable and interesting, but after a while I wanted to turn toward m- something more like research and writing. And so this has given me a chance to, to write books, to write essays and articles. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's the place where I do the kind of work that I, uh, that I think I can bring the most to.
0: So, in terms of the the broad themes of that academic interest, uh, can, and, and you have several books over the years that maybe capture some of those. But can you explain, just generally speaking, what is it that 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 you know that is interesting to you, and uh, you know are, the broad research programs that you're yeah you're
1: you know I'm interested in the ideas that underlie some of our familiar political and policy debates, and I would say one one recurring theme of my work is the source of the divisions between left and right in modern liberal democracy. Um, I uh, I, I wrote a book about the the roots of some of those in late 18th century debates between Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine. I wrote a book about the ways they manifest in science and technology debates. um, And I've written now a couple of books about the ways in which our political culture is broken down. and how both growing partisanship and polarization on on the one hand, and the kind of fragmentation and increasing alienation in American life has made it hard for our political system to function. I would say I'm interested in political culture and its effect on institutions. Um, And so that just naturally uh, happens at that intersection of theory and practice. And it's where most of my work has been directed.
0: And so specifically, if we talk on you know, party, I think you're, you're known as having some insights into the role of party and what's been happening with party recently. Um, but if we take the concept of party uh, and we look at Congress as an institution, right? Um, you know, the, the founders didn't really conceive of parties uh, when they designed the constitution. Uh, and that, but as you've mentioned, they formed right away. After, or someone has mentioned, it, I should yeah. say, someone you know, they formed right away afterwards. Um, you know, what is your perspective on what the appropriate role for parties are in Congress? Can you talk us through that a little bit? Uh, maybe over time, historically, and then you know, yeah. today, if you think there's anything special about the environment today for for parties.
1: Well, I think broadly speaking, um, our politics divided into not just parties, but two parties almost immediately um, after the, 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 the ratification of the Constitution. They haven't been quite the same two parties, but more or less. And when we've had more than two, it's only lasted uh, a short time until the system fell back into two. Um, and I think that speaks of a certain kind of fundamental division, that exists also in multi-party systems, but is especially expressed in ours. I would say some of the divisions that happen between parties in the European democracies happen within parties in the American system, and our parties are really um, their their sources of political professionalism in a system that is otherwise largely uh, 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 largely the terrain of amateurs. That is what the parties do um, is. Select candidates and define issues in ways that then allow our politics to proceed in a democratic fashion. Um, And the parties function best when they're able to play that role, when they define and shape the political arena. Um, They haven't been playing that role very well now for, I would say, at least two generations in American life because of some reforms that were undertaken for understandable reasons, reforms of the election system, especially the introduction of the primary system in the 70s reforms of campaign finance, all intended to empower the broader public um, over special interests, but I think ultimately rooted in some misunderstandings about what parties are and what they do. And we're in a situation now where the role that parties ought to play, candidate selection, uh, recruitment, and a a kind of broadening of the tent, um, forming groups of politicians into broad national coalitions, isn't really happening. And some of that work, because it isn't happening in the parties, has had to happen in Congress. Um, And, you know, the U.S. Congress is not really built to function that way. It is ultimately um, an arena for contention and accommodation, bargaining and compromise, and expecting it instead to be a forum for the working out of an increasingly polarized partisanship um has not been good for the Congress. And I think it's played out in some ways that have undermined the work of the legislature.
0: And, and what about this concept of the parties, you know, having sort of embedded their own rules into Congress itself, right? I mean, you have this concept of the minority leader, or the majority leader. I mean, those are not official titles uh, set up. They're, they're uh, manufactured by the parties themselves over time. You yep. know, there's the you know the speaker has really become the you know the majority leader. Um, you know we talked to Mickey Edwards, uh, Representative Mickey Edwards, a few weeks back, and uh, you know he's he's gone rogue. He, he's he's totally <laughs> against the party idea at this point, having any kind yeah. of structural influence in Congress. And I wonder, from your perspective, having thought through the you know the value that parties can bring, yeah, why do these structured rules exist in Congress that kind of ensconce the parties as legitimate uh, institutions within Congress. And are those necessary or are they impediments to the kind of compromise you're talking about?
1: Yeah, you know, the, the, these offices of majority leader, minority leader are not new. They've existed almost as long as the Congress has. And that's been the case because again, it's very hard to avoid uh, parties and partisanship in a system like ours. What is new is the centralization of power in those offices Um, so that rather than serve as an arena where coalitions form um, in an ad hoc way around issues and around legislative ideas, Congress has become an arena where two coalitions confront each other all the time. Um, I think that that has happened in part because of the broader polarization of the larger society outside of Congress but in part also because of the centralization of power in the Speaker, in the House, and in the majority leader in the Senate, in such a way that it's now much harder for internal factions to form within the parties. Throughout most of American history, if you looked at Congress, you would have found that although there are just two parties, there are actually four or six or eight recognizable factions within Congress. Sometimes these were regional, which wasn't always great. I mean, that, that, that leads to a kind of polarization too. Um, but sometimes they were, most times, they were a combination of regional and ideological. Northeastern Republicans were easy to distinguish from Southern Republicans and Western Republicans. Um, urban Democrats and rural Democrats were distinct. They were quite different. And these groups negotiated with each other across party lines, as well as within parties and Congress could function as an arena for coalition bargaining in that way. Uh, Over the last 25 years, maybe a little more, Congress has centralized power very intensely along partisan lines. And now it is more difficult, not impossible, it still happens, but more difficult for intra-party factions to form. So that I think that when we think about reforms of the Congress, one, one goal to aim at is to enable greater factionalization within the parties so that the two party coalitions are not quite as rigid as they have become. Um, I don't think you get away from parties and I don't think you get away from majority leaders and from the speaker being essentially a partisan role. That That is as old as the Congress now. But I think you can get to a point where power is more decentralized, particularly through the committee system and therefore where strange coalitions can form. The kind of thing that's happening now around an infrastructure bill where some Republicans working with some Democrats are doing something that's pretty disappointing to many other Republicans and other Democrats is how Congress has generally functioned. And I think it is worth thinking about how that can be recovered, because that allows Congress to operate in a way that pushes against the intense polarization of our larger politics rather than playing into it.
0: What about this concept of, you know, the, the majority or the minority leader, um, being able to control the members within their own party through you know, promotion, chairmanships, you know, X, Y, and Z. I mean, that, that's the reason that they vote in line, or, or is it not? I guess that's really my question. Um,
1: I think at this point it really isn't. Members don't value committee assignments the way they once did. Um, they're not known by what committee they're on, and they, they don't think of their, of, of their career advancement that way. Members are now independent operators to a very extraordinary degree. And ironically, that independence has actually empowered centralized leaders. The absence of a middle level of that is of committee work that matters to the members and matters to the leadership has meant that leaders have more power and members are more independent at the same time. And it always also meant that Congress is not functioning very well. So I, 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 you know, the party leadership has always had a fair amount of power over committee assignments and over uh, uh, who gets what, uh, who gets what kind of power in Congress, and that has always been a way to um, to demand a certain kind of uh, of party fealty and obedience. Obviously, there's a downside to that; it's a problem. But I would argue that actually the, the, the situation we face now looks more like a shortage of that than, than an excess of that. Um, the reason that members stick together is not so much that their leaders have a huge amount of leverage over them because of committee assignments. There is some leverage that leaders exercise in terms of, of fundraising, um, of helping them have the money they need to run. But frankly, members are polarized because the larger society is polarized and We have to think about how Congress can function in a way that pushes against that, that creates incentives for cross-partisan accommodation and coalition building. Um, And, you know, it, it seems to me that some degree of decentralization would help there, but less because party leaders have power within the institution than because there have to be some institutional forces that push against the kind of polarization that our political culture imposes on everybody now.
0: And you, it sounds like instead of you know, weakening the, you know, the chairman's or the, the speaker's ability to uh, dole out committee assignments, a better way would be just to, to empower the, the committee chairs would be a better way to affect that kind of change. Is that right?
1: I think so. Things like allowing committees to control some floor time, for example. Uh, I'll put it this way. A lot, of, a lot of members, especially in the House, but to some degree in the Senate, too, couldn't really tell you why they should spend time on committee work. It doesn't go anywhere. It's, it it doesn't end up being very valuable. Um, You know, it doesn't lead to legislation with their name on it. They need something to show back home. And if they can't show legislation, then they're going to show clips of themselves on their favorite cable news channel complaining about the other side. They got to show something. And the way things now work committee work just doesn't really get anywhere. Major bills move by party leaders talking to each other in private and writing a bill that members don't see until two days before they have to vote on them. Um, changing that so that some of the incentives that confront members drive them in the direction of doing legislative work with one another, which is what the committee system could do, I think is enormously important. Congress could learn a lot from the state legislators. legislatures on this front. Um, and a, a, a fair number of state legislatures now allow committees to control floor time. So a bill that makes it through committee, Um, has some guarantee that it will be considered by the larger body. Maybe it won't pass, but it'll get time on the floor. Right now, nobody gets time on the floor except the speaker and the majority leader. That's it. They control everything that happens. And so there's no point in devoting yourself to committee work. Members are not wrong to treat this as unimportant. It actually is unimportant at the moment.
0: Right. So I I guess that that leads us to another kind of discussion point that that uh, you've talked about in the past, which is, you know, if there were to be some discussion between the majority and the minority, what form would it take, right? Um, and, you know, I think there's the there's the notion of bargaining you've brought up, and then you know there's some other ways that people can get together. But can you take take us through that
1: yeah.
0: idea? How should the minority and the majority be be talking, be engaged with each other in Congress, and it, should it be in committee versus you know the floor, what have you?
1: I think it's a wonderful question. And it's a very important question because oftentimes I would put it this way, we we have a lot of agreement over the, the notion that there's something wrong with Congress. I actually think we have less agreement than we think about what's wrong with Congress and what would a Congress that is more functional look like. There are some people who would argue that a more functional Congress looks like a European Parliament, where the majority party gets to run things for however long the voters let it run things. And However narrow its majority, it's in charge. And that means that until it gets thrown out of power, it can do what it wants. Another vision of how Congress works, I would say a more Madisonian vision of how Congress works, is that cross-partisan agreement is essential for any real action to happen. And Congress is the arena where the two broad parties that define American political life have to deal with each other. They are given no choice but to deal with each other. I am very much in that latter camp. I think Congress is not a European Parliament, it should not be narrowly majoritarian, and it should be a place where the two parties have to deal with each other and have to find ways to somehow bargain, accommodate, uh, negotiate so that legislation can move. So that means, for example, that I'm protective of the filibuster in the Senate um, and other kinds of counter-majoritarian mechanisms in both houses that force some accommodation. We're in a moment now, for example, where we have the narrowest congressional majority in my lifetime, Um, a a party that a majority party that has 50 Senate seats and is in power because of the vice president and has less than 51 percent of the House. Um, It should be obvious to that party that it has to negotiate with the other party, but it is not obvious and it's not obvious to either one of them that that's what needs to happen now. I think what the interaction between them should look like is negotiation and bargaining. Now, there has to be some persuasion too, right? They're ultimately trying to improve the country. And it matters that they make a case to each other about what's good for the country, not just about what I want and what you want. But we also have to accept the fact that these are sophisticated adults who have spent their lives in politics. They're not just going to be persuaded to change their mind about big issues on the floor of the Senate. That's not going to happen. What, what could happen is a, a, a kind of bargaining that involves one side laying out its priorities, the other side laying out its priorities, and the two of them finding a way for each to achieve something significant. That traditionally is how our legislatures have worked, and I think it needs to be how Congress works. It doesn't come that naturally now to a lot of members. When you see examples of it, like bargaining over uh, a, 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 an infrastructure bill in the Senate, it's taken to be this kind of weird thing where, you know, members are working around the usual forms of of the institution. I think that's what the institution's work should look like. Um, Coalition's forming around issues and bargaining with each other to arrive at legislation.
0: So when you use the word bargaining, um, what in reality are we talking about? Are we talking about, you know, I'll give you a bridge if you give me a, uh, you know, uh, an airport? Or is it, you know, or is it you vote for my bill and I'll vote for your bill? What, when yeah. you say bargaining, what what are the actual things that we're talking about?
1: Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I think some, sometimes around the formation of legislation, it really does have to look like this is something I want very much. And in return for that, I'm willing to give you something that you want. Um, you know, that's generally what legislative bargaining looks like. Um, it's worth our recognizing that that kind of process actually requires some preconditions that are not well met by the contemporary Congress. Um, For example, it requires some privacy for negotiation. There's not a lot of that in Congress now. Congress is, is very transparent, again, for understandable reasons, but there are cameras in every committee room, not only on the floor, and it's very hard for members to talk to each other without having to put on a television show and bargaining in public is very hard. Um, expecting Congress to do that, I think, is unreasonable. There's, there's a reason why so much actual legislation happens outside the bounds of that system. In the leadership offices, you know, at midnight before a government shutdown, or you see the formation of these kinds of groups, um, you know, the, the gang of nine, the gang of 12, or these 20 members working on infrastructure, 20 members working on infrastructure kind of sounds to me like a committee right? That's what the congressional committees are supposed to be. 10 Republicans, 10 Democrats, they're bargaining over a particular policy issue. But these members feel like they have to do that outside of the framework of the committee system, because that framework does not actually give them the right environment to do that kind of work. So I think both in terms of, of reaching an agreement that says, I'll vote for this if you vote for that, and in terms of this bill should include some of what I want, some of what you want, if it's going to get both our votes, all of that requires an approach to legislative work that is less performative, that sees itself less as putting on a, a kind of uh, culture war entertainment, and that instead understands itself as in the business of negotiating. Um, that's just what Congress is for. You know, members who want to put on a show, there are other ways to do that. You can get a show on Fox News. Uh, that that's fine, but the actual work of Congress needs to look much more like old-fashioned legislative bargaining, because there isn't actually anywhere else in our political system for the, not only the parties, but the kind of factions and interests and, uh, and coalitions within the parties to talk to each other and work things out. It can't happen in the courts. That's not what they're for. The president is one person and can't speak for these different interests. This is what Congress is for, and it's the reason why Congress is at the center of our system of government. So I think we have to recover some of that. So, what you're
0: describing really sounds like a kind of a market, right? I mean, you could almost formalize it into a, a, tra- a trading market of some kind. Um, now, let's go to the other part of it, which is, you know, actual convincing someone of something, uh, you know, changing someone's mind, right? When we talk about, and again, I come from a science background where that's what it's all about you know you, you're using data yep. uh, that either comport with theories or they don't and if they don't you re, you know people have to reject the theories and adopt new ones right um, one would presume that this this process could be possible in the Congress um, you know can you talk to me a little bit about that what what do you think gives you hope that such a thing is possible and what says that it's not
1: well I'll say a couple of things I, I think that that kind of persuasion happens much more now within the party coalitions than between them. The different factions of the Democratic Party absolutely do persuade one another of things. Uh, and not, not, not in a cynical way, they actually do. Um, you know, politicians who come into politics as uh, you know from, from the, the kind of left wing of the progressive coalition but by encountering Southern Democrats or others who have a different view on on crime or on the or on economics, they actually really can come to change their views. I've seen this happen in the the Republican Party, I'm a Republican, um, where a lot of of people in public life on the right have come over time to, I, I would say, if you think of the right as consisting of social conservatives and economic conservatives, Each of those has become much more like the other over the last 20 years. And it's not just as a result of political pressure and the strength of the coalition, people have actually become persuaded. Um, Social conservatives who think that markets work, fiscal conservatives who have come to understand why there's a concern about culture, for example, um, that does happen. I've certainly seen people become persuaded of things. It's much more rare for it to happen across party lines now And part of that is the concern that everything you do is public, is on television, for a member of Congress to sort of be seen becoming persuaded by the other side um, on on an issue that's significant to his or her voters, you know, it's a risk they try not to run. It's unfortunate, but I don't know how many people have ever been really persuaded of very much on the floor of the House or Senate, right? Again, that happens in in more private settings, uh, in conversations with each other, I certainly do think that more time spent together could help people understand each other better. But in my experience, I've seen that happen much more within the parties than between them.
0: And you think that's mainly in part due to the private nature of inter-party or the private nature of intra-party discussions versus between I think the that's parties? part of
1: it. And also just the polarization of our uh, of our broader political culture, where it's just harder now for a politician to say, You know, I'm a Republican, but on these questions of race, I just completely understand what the left is saying and I agree with them. That's, I think there are plenty of Republicans who might believe that. There are very few who want to be out there saying that. And the incentives are not there for them to be seen to be persuaded.
0: Well, so let's move on then to this concept of incentives. You've given that area a lot of thought. And, uh, you know, when you look at any individual member, House member or senator, you know, there's so many incentives you could list there. Uh, Very, you know, at the bottom is, you know, for the country, you know, to make it a better country. You've got re-election and a lot of scholars, they make a whole career of trying to figure out which incentives are responsible for which legislation. Um, None of them often are very noble. Um, So can you talk me through your your perspective on incentives? and, and where they are now, how they've evolved, uh, and how they need to change.
1: Yeah, I i tend to, I tend to put the, the, the most cynical kinds of economic and even electoral incentives a little lower down in the rank of what moves members of Congress. They matter. Don't get me wrong. They matter a lot. But I think that there are powerful cultural incentives now that also drive these members. Members of Congress are ambitious politicians. They, they want to succeed, they want to be prominent, um, they want to rise, they want fame, they want influence. And the question is, how do you get these things? Some of that is just about being elected and re-elected, and that's hugely important. Electoral incentives surely are extremely powerful. There are also now, um, in our political culture, a set of incentives that drive people to treat the Congress as a performative arena, as a platform where you can show your voters that you're bringing the fight to the other side. Um, And so if you you attend just an average congressional hearing now, a lot of what you'd find are not members talking to each other or listening to a witness, but members talking to a camera and producing a YouTube clip that they're gonna use later when running for reelection. Or trying to get on Fox or, or MSNBC with just the right, with just the right line that their voters are gonna email to each other. And very often a committee hearing is very frustrating as a result of this because members will just say the same thing as the last guy said, because he needs a video of himself saying it. Doesn't matter if the question was already asked. I think those kind of performative incentives should not be underestimated. They are now enormously important to how members understand their upward path. Part of that is because there's less for them to do legislatively, as we talked about. Spending time just getting to know the financial system for your committee work is not as worthwhile. And that's a powerful incentive. Part of it is that this is what our political culture um, celebrates and rewards. It's, the, it's how to get the attention of your voters. Uh, it is how to rise. And so I think alongside electoral incentives, uh, you have these cultural incentives. Now, let me say a word about electoral incentives. I think it should never be underestimated how much the introduction of primaries in the 1970s transformed the culture of the Congress, and that's all about incentives. We've created a situation by now where the, the, the most significant concern that most members have in both parties is about a primary challenge. It's especially true in the House, but it's also true in the Senate. They have pretty safe seats, they're, you know, if you're the Republican and you're running in Missouri, you're probably going to win, not necessarily, but probably. And, and surely if you're running in Mississippi or if you're the Democrat in Oregon, you're going to if you win that nomination, you're going to win the seat. But winning that nomination is where the real fight is had. And that means that the incentive you have is not to build a broad coalition, to build a big tent. It's it's to appeal to the most narrowly focused voters who are most likely to show up on primary day. And that to me is an argument for thinking about electoral reform because the incentives that confront members of Congress should be incentives for broadening the tent, for reaching across party lines. The parties have that incentive. If you're the Republican party and you've got to elect people both in Mississippi and in Delaware, you're gonna wanna build a broad tent. The Democratic Party is just the same way but the individual member doesn't have that incentive. And I think we need to look for ways to better align the party and the individual incentive in such a way that there's a reason for members to try to reach persuadable voters and reach out to people who are not already intensely on their side. So I would look at those two kinds of incentives, electoral and fundamentally cultural and thinking about why Congress works the way it does.
0: Sort of back to the discussion I had with um, Representative Mickey Edwards, Uh, you know, he, he's a fan of abolishing these, uh, these structural, um, mechanisms that parties have put in various States and say, you know, that restrict who can run. And if they've lost the primary, they can't run in the, in the general election. Is that something you would support or do you have another mechanism in mind to, to mitigate the problems you're, you're yeah,
1: I, I think it's hard to get from here to there, but I, I do think that, um, moving in the direction of for congressional elections of more open primaries followed by rank choice voting um, could really be a way to, to get the incentives closer to right when it comes to members of Congress. So if um, you know the top five vote getters regardless of party in the primary are on the election day ballot and the, the winner is chosen by rank choice voting Everybody has an incentive to try to be the second choice of as many people as possible. And in a way that's what we should want of our politicians. Certainly they have their views and they have their voters but they should want to also appeal to people who are not intensely with them on everything but who will say, well, she's a good person and she's someone I trust. Um, Having that kind of incentive prevents you from going all the way to the edges of your party coalition and keeps you focused on the broader interest of the district, the state, ultimately the country. Um, and so I do think we, it's worth experimenting with electoral reform in that way that gets us beyond uh, the strict party primary for House and Senate seats. I just think that is an experiment that has failed utterly. And um, you know, it's not easy to get beyond it. It's not easy to make the case against it, but I think it's important to try.
0: So if we go back to the, the notion of incentives in Congress itself, I mean, obviously, they have their direct constituencies if they've got, you know, their own Twitter feeds and their own uh, social media accounts, but also a lot of what shapes their incentives is what the media reports on. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the media and what incentives it's creating um, and what, what pathologies it's creating in Congress because of that incentive structure?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to see that the, the, the driving force when it comes to political journalism has been the fragmentation of the mainstream media over the, the past generation or so. So that rather than being filtered through um, a small number of mainstream institutions, um, news political news now gets filtered through a much larger number of more explicitly partisan um, media organs. And that means that members have an incentive to speak to their most intensely polarized voters through the medium of of journalistic forums that reward and value polarized political speech. Um, Essentially, members have to constantly convey the view that the other party is the country's biggest problem. That's what everybody wants to hear. That's what everybody wants to see you doing and you have to be seen to be fighting and making the other party, driving the other party crazy. Um, that's not entirely new, don't get me wrong. There's always been that kind of, uh, there's always been an element of polarization and appealing to voters, but the nature of political media now means that there is a, a kind of, um, there's a kind of cycle of intensification of that sort of political polarization. And there's much less reward for being the guy who works out the compromise infrastructure bill. Um, you, you have to have a lot of confidence in your, in your seat, in your coalition back home. You got to be six years away from an election or the Republican in Utah, where you're never going to lose in a million years um, to be able to do that. And without question, the media environment has a lot to do with that.
0: And so how can that change Uh, or can it, you know, is it, is it something where, you know, it's just a temporary thing and eventually a lot of these platforms will reconsolidate and you'll have a, you know, 20 years from now, we'll have the, you know, four media outlets again. Do you think this is just a temporary situation for media or is this something that we have to address in some other fundamental way to counter?
1: Yeah, I I think there is something to that argument. You can look at at a kind of cycle of this sort where if you look at the political media environment, say, in the early American Republic at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, it looked a lot like this. Um, Very low barriers to entry resulting in a massive number of extremely partisan political organs. Um, You know, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette is called that because it was literally created by the Democratic Party um, as a way to convey whatever news they wanted. To reach their voters, um, you know the Illinois Republican. So I, I, I think we've seen that, and economic pressures basically drove consolidation. Now it's not obvious how that's going to happen now, but I do think that there's a basic problem in the contemporary political media environment, which is that there are essentially no viable business models. Very few people are making money. I don't think that's sustainable. I mean, it's hard to imagine how you sustain it without it other either becoming basically a philanthropic endeavor where people are where donors are supporting journalistic work or some different business model forms around some other some other way of using advertising or subscription or something else that allows this to to survive to flourish that's how markets work i i tend to think that where we're going to land isn't going to be where we are because There has to be a functional business model, but I don't know what it is. And so I wouldn't say that I'm confident that it'll be consolidated rather than fragmented. I do think that this is a phase, that this is leading somewhere. uh, And I, for one, don't have a clear picture of where that is. So to the extent that media drives political incentives, which is an enormous extent, the evolution of political media is going to be enormously important to the future of our politics.
0: So if we go back to the notion of incentives then for The institution. I mean, one of the things that you've talked about is, you know, this this idea of uh, looking at Congress as a platform for self promotion, and which is essentially putting yourself above the Congress, right? You know, the idea of yourself is superior, or the idea of your party is uh, is superior to this notion of the institution of Congress. You're putting yourself above the Congress, yeah, Uh, and that's the fundamental incentive problem. what do we need to do to create the incentive the other way around, where you put Congress above self as a, as a member, you put Congress above party?
1: So I think you have to start from the premise that these are ambitious people who are going to want to put their success first. And the question is, how do you invest that ambition into Congress as an institution rather than into their partisan identity or, or their personal brand? Um, and I think the answer to that has to involve some institutional change in the Congress. So that the question, what is, worth, what is it worth my time to do? Um, the answer to that is less about how to get on cable news and more about how to uh, achieve something legislatively that you then can get credit for. Um, I think that involves in part some of what we've talked about in terms of changing the, the, the logic of the committee work and, and their structure giving committees more control floor time, giving them some more ability to move things on their own. I think it's also very important to think about changes to the budget process. Um, The budget is at the center of Congress's work. Um, In some ways, it always has been. The modern budget process, which which was created in the 1970s, was designed for a Congress, basically a one-party institution. It was designed for a Congress run by the Democratic Party In which Republicans have some interest in advancing their ideas, but don't expect to ever be in power. And that's how Congress was for a long time. Since the mid 1990s, and Francis Lee is really the best voice on this, Congress has been going back and forth. And the budget process we have is extremely poorly suited for this kind of narrow partisan majorities. And I think we have to think very fundamentally about how to change the budget process in a way that could better invest members in their legislative work. For example, I think that eliminating the distinction between authorization and appropriation, a bill that makes law and a bill that spends money, would be enormously important so that the work that happens in most of the committees, which are authorizing committees, would actually spend public money, would be the way in which Congress uses its power of the purse. Um, that distinction is not in the Constitution. It doesn't. It, Congress doesn't have to work this way. Um, and it, it, to think creatively about that, I think, offers you some opportunities to empower members to elevate themselves as legislators rather than as political performers. To me, those are the kinds of changes we should look for.
0: Yeah, I had a great conversation with Alan Schick um, a few weeks back as well, who's. His whole career is dedicated to this budget question, and he's unfortunately quite p- pessimistic yeah. after all of his uh, attempts to, to look at reforming that process. But in terms of you know splitting appropriations and and um, and authorizations, you know, there's a there's a logic there. Um, you think that it, it doesn't make sense necessarily. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, so it sounds like your your prescription is to spread spending power more widely in the Congress. Yes, that's right. Give more members uh, uh, a stake in the game of of negotiating over real money.
1: Exactly, to give more members more of a stake and to break that very consolidated budget process, which has come down almost literally to one big vote a year, into ongoing legislative work that matters day by day, because that's in fact how Congress ends up both making laws and spending money. Right now, a lot of the work that members are called to do as legislators just actually doesn't matter. They're not being irresponsible by ignoring it. It doesn't matter. It's going to be overwhelmed by whatever bills the leadership decides on at the end of the process. If it mattered more, they would devote more time to it. That's that's the nature of incentives.
0: I mean, the nice thing about appropriations type of decisions is that their, their, uh, their magnitude in, in in their decision structure, right? You, you're deciding a number um, and and that number is infinitely variable, right? Um, And And so there can be
1: bargaining, right? You can say, I want this much, you want that much. If you're talking numbers, there's something in the middle.
0: Right. Whereas for a lot of other kinds of decisions are binary, right? They're values-based decisions potentially where there is no middle ground. Um, And so in those non-middle ground of categories, um, how do you come to agreement? Is, it's that, is it just the brute force majority or is it some other mechanism?
1: Well, it's a challenge. I mean, there, I think it's important to develop a culture of bargaining where you're used to talking to people and working with people from the other party and saying you get some and I get some, but there's no easy way. I, I don't have a prescription for how Congress could say negotiate over, uh, you know, abortion. Um, that's never going to be easy and it's probably not something that belongs in Congress uh, ultimately for that reason. But I think a lot of the work that Congress is called upon to engage in looks more like um, a a kind of traditional, uh, you know, bargaining oriented legislative work where there's a public problem, there are different ways to address it. um, There's some middle ground to be had. And ultimately you can arrive at a bill that's supported by a strange looking cross-partisan coalition Nobody's perfectly happy, but everybody's achieved something. That kind of accommodation to me is what success looks like in a in in a Democratic legislature.
0: One question I have on decisions always fascinates me as it relates to Congress is this notion of time. Right. Um, And externalities, really. I mean, you you have this Congress today. uh, They're elected for two years or for six years for, for senators. And they're making decisions that can bind external parties, uh, future voters uh, that, that don't have as much to say in the current Congress under their current notions of representation. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I talked to uh, Alan Schick about is this kind of, is there a dif- different kind of decision structure that needs to be um, embraced when you're making decisions that are, have much longer term liabilities? Right. So simple majorities for something that is born today versus, you know, super majorities for things that bind the grandkids, you know. Um, and I guess there's been attempts to balance budget amendments to try to do this type of thing. But I'm curious on your opinion on this, whether there's a, a real distinction between these types of decisions and whether they should have a different mechanism.
1: It's a very interesting question, you know, because Congress in some ways has gone in the other direction, which is they've empowered simple majorities to make spending decisions which are ultimately also borrowing decisions, which impinge the freedom of action of future generations, more than almost anything Congress does, um, and has allowed those to be simple majority decisions while everything else Congress does, uh, at least could require a supermajority in the Senate. Um, and, you know That's been done in part because spending decisions just have to be made, otherwise there's paralysis and um, the budget process looks for ways to make sure that it avoids paralysis. Um, you know, I, I certainly think there are ways to try to prioritize and think about the things that matter most in the long run and look for ways to make sure those are addressed. In a democratic society, and this has certainly been true in American life, those kinds of issues are especially hard for Congress to focus on. Um, the, the, the issues where the, the, the problem to be solved is a long-term problem that isn't going to show itself within the next two years or six years are issues that we just put off. We don't deal with them. Whether that's, whether that's the, the fiscal trajectory of the federal budget, whether it's climate change, things where if we don't do anything, there'll be a problem someday, but not on election day, are the least likely to get addressed. And I certainly think it's worth looking for ways to help those be taken up, but uh, I don't know that we've seen a good formula for doing it.
0: All right, so I think it's time for us to move on to our, uh, our common questions we ask all our guests. We've already addressed some of them, uh, and I'll ask you to rehash your, your feelings on those questions, if you don't mind. Uh, but if you're ready, we'll move on to those. Sure. All right, the first one is uh, something I just mentioned, which is what do you think congressional representation should mean?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a very important question. I, I, I would say that representation is not a simple matter. Congress isn't simply representative. We're asking, in a sense, members are charged with making decisions on our behalf, um, not simply doing what I would do if I were in Congress, but showing me that I can trust them to make careful judgments uh, in, the, in the national interest and in the interest of the district or the state. And so I think representation doesn't have to look like simple majoritarianism. Um, Ultimately, Congress exists to enable large public problems to be resolved through accommodation and bargaining. And that doesn't look like direct representative uh, majoritarianism. There have to be mechanisms in the system to compel and to enable that process of accommodation. And I think our, our Congress sees that. It's designed with that in mind. It isn't doing an ideal job of it now. But I think there's a reason for the counter-majoritarian forces in the design of the institution. And I'd like to see those reinforced.
0: So I know you're a big Burke fan. Uh, So it sounds like that you believe that representatives should make their own judgments um, on policy matters and that they're not just a window into the beliefs of their constituency. I that do. Right?
1: And, that, you know, they're accountable for those judgments. Uh, you know, the, the that famous line of Burke's that the, that the uh, member of parliament um, isn't simply a delegate, but owes his voters his judgments. Less frequently told is that Burke lost the next election. He said that in a speech to his voters and they were not impressed. Uh, you are accountable for for what you do. But I think that's right. You owe people your judgment and not simply uh, and, and not simply a window into their will.
0: And it sounds like your opinion is that it's the whole district or the whole state, not just the the party, the majority or the primary voters that matter. It's your representative of the entire constituency. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Look, I think that cliche that the politicians say after they win an election that I uh, you know that 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 they want to represent everyone, including people who voted against them. It's not always easy to do that, but I think to the extent they can, that actually should be their goal. Absolutely.
0: And what about future generations that will live in that district? Um, I'm going to give you a harder question since you've thought it through more uh, than than since uh than than a lot of others. Uh, which is, you know, future generations are not voting. Um, We don't know what their opinions are, their beliefs are, their needs are. Uh, You know, does the member represent them or is he representing his current constituents and those current constituents embody those future needs?
1: Yeah, look, I think the best we can do on that front is, is work so that the society we have is worthy of being passed along to that next generation, is a worthy inheritance for them we can't know exactly what they will need, let alone what they will want, but we do know what the difference between a thriving and a failing society is. And one of the reasons we should want our society to thrive, aside from, of course, wanting our own lives to flourish, is wanting that next generation to flourish. And you know, I think a lot of times people can be counted on to take that into account, you know, to a degree. People have children and grandchildren. People understand. Uh, that we have a certain obligation to the future. That obligation doesn't answer specific policy questions. It doesn't tell us uh, you know, what level of taxation is the right one. But I think that it can be an important check on certain kinds of, of, of short-term uh, thinking that can be damaging to the country.
0: So do you think the representative represents the future constituents or the current ones?
1: I think ultimately the representative is answerable to the current constituents. And you know, cares about the future to the extent they do and the the extent that all of us do.
0: Great. All right. Next question is how would your ideal Congress allocate its time?
1: Well, I think that um, a lot more of Congress's time should be devoted to committee work on substantive legislative development. Um, And I think that some portion of that time should be committee work that is not televised or live streamed. Committees have to build in time for their members to work together, to get to know each other, to talk to each other. They should learn from the intelligence committees how valuable it can be to have some non-performative time in Congress. And if I could change the schedule, first of all, I think members should be around longer. Um, they should try to have long stretches where they are in Washington followed by long stretches where they are back home. And that a fair amount of that should be spent in, in committee working on bills.
0: So where do you come out on the home versus in D.C. question in terms of percentage?
1: I'm not sure. I mean, I think in some ways the percentage may be right now, except that we divide it up in such a way that members are here from Tuesday to the end of Thursday um, every week, and then they're home for a long weekend. And that means they, they aren't really in either place. They're always about to go somewhere. And I think that if we instead thought of it in terms of spending four or five weeks in Washington, then spending four or five weeks at home, it'd still be 50-50, but you'd be more present in both cases.
0: And how about the breakdown between the legislative aspects and the oversight aspects, or do you not put a distinction between them?
1: I I think they're connected, but I would say that there there ought to be more time spent on more traditional legislative work um, and that you know, especially if we do somehow break down the barrier between authorizing and legislating, members would have an opportunity to specialize more in substantive policy areas and then could also be more effective at oversight in those areas. But Congress's fundamental work is legislation. And I think that should be, that should come before oversight.
0: Got it. So the next one is something we discussed at length already, but uh, give you a chance to kind of you know, summarize your thinking, how should debate, deliberation, or dialogue occur or be structured in Congress?
1: Yeah, well, as we've said, I mean, I I think the model of bargaining should be at the center of it, that the goal is to resolve differences by negotiation. Um, And so not simply to, uh, to talk over the other party and to overpower the other party, but ultimately to see that a conclusion will be arrived at by some uh, by, some, by some form of compromise. It's obvious in theory, but it's plainly not obvious in practice to a lot of members. And I think that's the way to think about it.
0: All right. Next one is what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years?
1: Yeah. Um, I think one thing that's important is to begin to grow the House of Representatives again um, in, in, in relation to the size of the population. This happened throughout the 19th century. After almost every census, um, the, the number of members in the House grew so that the proportion of constituents to members uh, stayed roughly the same. It hasn't happened now for more than 100 years. And uh, it's time. It would help us to rebalance representation some, to rebalance the electoral college some. It would also create a, an opportunity for other sorts of reforms, budget reforms, like we've talked about. So I think that's one important change that I would push for uh, in, the, in the coming decades. It won't be easy. Members, uh, you know, who thrive in the current Congress don't feel like it needs to change. But I think it's important to help them see that. What do you think the
0: political consequences would be under such a change?
1: It's really unpredictable. And that's one of the nice things about it. Um, it would not obviously help one party or the other. Um, because it would allow the house to be, to, to offer a more fine-grained representation in, in, in relation to the, the decennial census. Um, and so there'd be advantages to both parties in different ways. And it's one of the reasons I think it has the shot. Right. Uh,
0: next one is what book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform?
1: You know, the, I would say one of the greatest influences on me has been Francis Lee, um, the great political scientist now at Princeton. Um, who tries to understand the modern Congress in its own terms, not just to think about it nostalgically and not just to think about it abstractly, but to ask what it is and what it does well and what it does poorly. Um, I've learned a huge amount from the work that she does.
0: Great. Well, the last question here is the the question about the future. What do you plan to work on? And, uh, you know, what, do you have any books in, new books that you're working on? Or, you know, what, what's the, uh, what, are the, what are the future plans?
1: Well, when it comes to Congress uh, in particular, my work is really focused now on, uh, on electoral reform and on institutional reform, budget process, and a few other things. I'm part of a team at the American Enterprise Institute uh, with Kevin Kosar and Philip Wallach, John Fortier and others um, who are working on these questions. And I think there's, uh, th- th- there are a lot of interesting prospects to come. I am also at the beginning of a book about how to think about the American Constitution um, as a framework for accommodation in a divided society. Some of the issues that we've talked about here, ways of resolving differences by by opening up arenas of contention and allowing tension to endure but to drive change, uh, thinking about the structure of the Constitution as a model for doing that. And so it's a kind of guide to the Constitution as a more than legal document but as uh, as shaping a regime that ought to be able to live with, uh, with its immense and growing diversity more constructively than we have so far.
0: Great. Well, all thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. Please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast on your preferred podcast streaming service. You've been listening to the Sunwater Institute's Reforming Congress interview series. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.